for Sunday with us or you've been visiting for a couple weeks and I haven't had a chance to meet you, I would love to meet you after the service. If you're around uh, just for a few minutes, I'd love to get to know you a little bit and, and hear uh, maybe how you came here and, and how it is as a church. We can uh, love you and support you. So if you are a guest, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. And this morning we are in Exodus chapter 17, Exodus 17. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there or you can follow along in your order of service. The passage is printed there in your order of service as well. Now, as Christians, uh, we believe that the central character, the central figure in the entire universe and the central character of our entire lives is our Lord Jesus, that, that he is the central person in the history of the world and, and that that is true not just of the world and of our lives, but he's the central character of the entire Bible. Not just the New Testament, but also the Old. Um, now, now, maybe you're sitting there and you're, maybe you're a little familiar with the Bible, um, and, and you're sitting there thinking, but, but the Old Testament doesn't even seem to name Jesus by name. Um, Exodus itself doesn't name Jesus' name. How is it that he can be the central figure? Well, well, as the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible says, that wonderful uh, children's Bible that I know some of you use with your children, it says in its tagline, every story whispers his name. And Sally Lloyd-Jones got it right when she wrote that. Every story whispers his name. Now, some of the stories whisper it loudly and some of it very softly. But every story whispers his name, and that is true of the New Testament, it is true of the Old, it is true of Exodus. It's true of the passage in which we're about to read. His name is whispered in the midst of these verses. It's whispered in the form of God showing his character to us. That as God responds to the complaints of his people, he responds by showing his good character and in doing so, he is showing us more of Christ. And so let's read Exodus 17 and listen for the whisper of that name. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and, brought and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. 
Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (coughs) Excuse me. So some of you know uh, that I like to bake, that this is something that I like to do in my free time. I like to bake cakes, and I like to work with chocolate, and I like to make cookies. Basically, anything that's sweet and, uh, and chocolatey, I like to make. Now, now uh, I will have to say right from the outset that I am no Sarah Guidi, right? Like Sarah Guidi, we, we all bow before you. We, I am no Sarah Guidi, but, but I like to bake nonetheless, and so a number of years ago, uh, we were having a community group at our home, and we were going to eat dinner, and I decided I was going to make us a cake. I was going to bake a cake. And it was the springtime, so I was going to incorporate some, some springtime flavors like raspberry into this cake, but, but it would be paired with chocolate because the foundation of everything good and pure in baking is chocolate, right? <laughs> right? Can I get an amen? Yeah, that's right, that's right. And dark chocolate at that. And so, so I decided I was going to make a three-tiered chocolate cake with raspberry buttercream frosting and dark chocolate ganache drizzled over it. That's right. Mm, that, that is the right response. And so I, I started making the cake. I started uh, putting together the sponge. It came out perfect. I cut it. I, I layered it with the raspberry buttercream frosting. I poured the chocolate ganache over top of it, and there it sat in our dining room. The community group came in, and, and we went and sat at dinner to eat together, and, and we looked at the, the cake, and people complimented me on how it looked because it looked beautiful, and we just knew it was going to taste so good. And as I sat there, the anticipation grew. Like, my belly, it, it grew in my belly. Like, I couldn't wait to eat it. Like, can we finish dinner so we can get to the cake? Because I knew this was going to be the best cake ever. The anticipation had grown. And I couldn't wait. Now I imagine that as Israel's walking through the wilderness, as they're longing for a place of rest, a place of reprieve from the wilderness, there is an anticipation growing in their hearts, a longing for a place of rest. In fact, as they're going through the wilderness, they're looking for food, they're looking for water, they're in the scorching sun, and they hear this place, Rephidim. Rephidim in the Hebrew means literally resting place. Rephidim, they hear it, and I can imagine in their hearts uh, an anticipation is growing. They can't wait to get to this place of rest because a resting place must have sounded so good in the barren, dry desert. A place of rest. I could imagine that as the anticipation, the longing grew, they started to think this is going to be the best place ever. Well, as the anticipation grew, finally it came to an end. The longing was no more. The wait was over. Dinner was finished. And so I grab my cake and I stick it in the middle of the table. 
and I cut through it, and there are these massive, I mean massive pieces of cake on people's plates, and, and it's exactly the way I was hoping it would be. Three perfect layers of chocolate. The buttercream is just right in between, and the chocolate's drizzling around the sides, and we hand it out. We grab our forks, and we dive into it, and we start eating, and it was awful. I mean, it was disgusting. It was so bad. The chocolate cake, the sponge actually tasted good, but the buttercream frosting is way too much butter and not enough raspberry and not enough sugar. It was terrible. The worst cake ever. <laughs> the build-up, the anticipation, and it was a monumental letdown. I was so disappointed. And so was Israel. They come to this place of rest, Rephidim, and what they find is not a resting place, but they find a place that is dry, that is just like the wilderness that they have come out of. They had anticipation and longing and expectation. Rephidim, this place of rest. And it looked to them like a place of death. You can actually hear it in their words in verse 3, can't you? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You can hear it, can't you? Resting place? More like dying place. Rephidim? No. This is the worst place ever. You can hear it. They anticipated, they longed, they expected rest, but when rest wasn't found, what did they do? My friends at the table, they, they spit across... No, they didn't spit out the... <laughs> that would have been very funny. No. No, they were, they were very uh, appropriate and smiled and kept eating their disgusting cake. But the people, <laughs> the people of Israel, what did they do? When their longings and their desires, when the build-up was found to be wanting... They complained. They complained. That's what they did. The people's complaint. They complained. They complained before, right? I've already said that there are three chapters in the book of Exodus, 15, 16, and 17, where the people grumble and they grumble again. They've been grumbling, grumble, grumble, grumble. But this is much worse than a grumble. Because in their complaint, they're taking the form of testing. And they're taking the form of trying. You see, it's not just simply a grumble. They are testing the Lord. That's what Moses says in verse 2. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Now, to test means to require something of God, to, to prove who he is. And that's what Israel's doing. It doing. We see it in verse 7. In verse 7, they've been talking about water or the lack thereof. And then in verse 7, they say, is the Lord among us or not? Now, I want you to consider the assumption that's behind this question because this isn't a simple query, right? This isn't just them trying to gather information. This is pointed. Their question is actually accusing the Lord of something. You see, they're basically saying, God, you must not be here because there is no water. No water equals no God. 
Now, they're not denying the existence of God because that has been very clear throughout the whole of the Exodus, right? It is God who's led them out. What they are questioning and what they are testing God about is his abiding presence with them. In essence, to turn it, what they're saying is, God, if you are really with us, then you would give us water. You would give us what we want. They are testing him. Kids, this is kind of like when you say to your parents, you don't really love me because you make me go to bed at 8 o'clock at night. You don't really love me because if you did, you would give me an extra scoop of ice cream or you would extend my curfew or you would put me on the six-week waiting list for the iPhone 10. You don't really love me. <laughs> and when you say that to them, what you're doing is you're testing their character. You are saying that if you do this, then I will know that you are good. And that's what Israel is doing. And that's what we do. I mean, I talked about last week a little bit, right? That, that question, that, that comment that we make, if you would only give me a spouse, give me children, give me a job, give me this possession, if you would only do these things, then God, I would, I would follow you, I would trust you, I would love you, I would adore you. But when we say that, when we do those sorts of things, what we're doing is we're testing God's character and we are making that thing, whatever it is, a spouse, a job, an iPhone 10, whatever it is, we are making that the qualifier for whether God is good or not. And in essence, what that is, is making that thing our functional God. In essence, we're testing God and saying, God, you are not good enough unless you give me this thing. And as soon as we say unless, we're really saying you are not good enough. It's testing God. It's not trusting him. That's what Israel is doing. They are testing the Lord, not trusting him. Do you remember there's, there's a story in the New Testament in which there is testing again, another story of testing. Thousands of years after this one, Jesus is found in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He's found in the wilderness. He has had no water or no bread. It sounds a little bit like Israel, doesn't it? He goes out into the wilderness and Satan comes to him and tempts him. And what is it that Satan says to him? If you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan's inviting Jesus to test the goodness of God. Is his word really true? And how did Jesus respond? It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, in that moment, Jesus didn't test God. He trusted him. He trusted in the character of God, and that's what Israel should have been doing. But they tested him. But they didn't stop with testing him. They actually tried him. They put him on trial. See, we see it in verse 2. The people quarreled. The people grumbled. Now, again, as I already said, we're familiar with grumbling. They've been doing it for chapters now, but, but the grumblings ratcheted up. Now, when we think of quarrel, we think of disputing or of an argument that's being made. And there is that sense that's going on. They're disputing with, with Moses. They're disputing with God. But, but this Hebrew word for quarrel has a technical meaning. It, it means it has the connotation of conducting a legal case against someone. 
And so what Israel is doing when they quarrel with Moses is they're bringing a charge against Moses. They're bringing a charge against him, a capital charge, in fact, because in verse 4, you'll see that Moses says they are ready to stone me. So basically, this is what's happening. Israel's saying, sure, you brought us out of Egypt. You delivered us from Egypt, but you brought us into the wilderness to kill us. And because you have brought us here to kill us, then Moses, you deserve to die. They're bringing charge and a sentence against Moses. But the reality is, is that this charge against Moses isn't simply a charge against him. It's much more than that. Because Moses is God's representative. He has been following the will of the Lord. He has been leading as God has called him to lead. And so a charge against Moses is a charge against God himself. And so Israel is putting God in the dock. It's a line that I'm borrowing from C.S. Lewis. A number of years ago, he wrote a wonderful essay called God in the Dock. And in it, he says that modern man likes to put ourselves in the seat of judgment over God. We like to put ourselves in the seat of judgment over God rather than sitting under his judgment. So I want you to think about how we do that. You've heard people say, maybe you've even said this yourself, maybe in your hearts or even with your lips, well, I can't believe in a God that would allow suffering, trial, difficulty. I can't put my trust in a God who would allow me to go through this circumstance or this difficulty. See, as soon as we start saying things like that, what we're doing is we are putting ourselves in the judgment seat over the Lord. We are trying to understand the world. We are trying to look at it, and we're trying to understand it with our sensibilities and, and with the way that we think it should function. And what we are doing, as soon as we say those sorts of things, is we are saying, God, you have to form yourself to, the, to our idea of how things ought to work. We're trying to form God into the image of our sensibilities and our understandings rather than having our sensibilities and our thoughts and our words and our hearts being formed to his ways. We're putting God in the dock. And we're making ourselves the judge. And that is exactly what Israel does. They're putting him on trial. They're questioning his character. Is he really good? Friends, that is the ultimate question. Is he really good? Now listen, when, when we ask these sorts of questions, now, now maybe if, if you're really savvy, you're starting to sit there and you're wondering, but Penny, we see questions in the Bible all the time, and it seems like God invites it, right? Like we spend a whole summer in the Psalms, and there are some pretty, pretty bold questions in the Psalms. God, are you there? Where are you? Have you forgotten about your people? And it seems as though God invites those. And yet here, he doesn't condone them. Even in the New Testament, Mary says to the archangel, right, how is it that I can have a baby? I'm a virgin. But she's not condemned. So, so how do we understand this? The difference is in those questions from the psalmist or from Mary, it is questions, not questioning. It is misunderstanding, seeking understanding. It is sitting under God's judgment and being willing to be formed by him, not sitting over him. Not questioning, are you really good? Not questioning his character. 
Because, friends, that is the ultimate question. Is God good? Is his character trustworthy? How we answer that question is going to dictate how it is that we respond to him, how it is that we live under him. So is he good? Well, what we see is God's character coming out in how he responds to this testing and to this trial. We see his character on display because the king of the universe, the judge over all, he could have responded by smiting them with fire, right? He could have rained fire down. He could have opened up the earth and engulfed them. And actually, there are times where he does that. (laughs) Uh, That's another chapter, another book, another time. But he could have done that. But he didn't. No, instead, he actually engages in their futile attempt to bring a charge against him. He tells Moses in verse 5, Pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Okay, so, so God's entering into this courtroom scene. Take the elders. They're going to be witnesses to the unfolding courtroom drama. Take the, the staff, the staff of judgment, right? Often in the Old Testament, the staff or the rod was, had the connotation of judgment, and God's making that connection very clear when he mentions the river Nile. Because you remember, it was when the Nile was struck with the staff that God was bringing judgment upon Egypt. Take the rod of judgment with you, Moses. He's entering into the court. And so we would expect that the staff would come down upon Israel, right? They're the ones who have sinned, They're the ones who have tested and tried God. We would expect that he would bring that judgment down upon them, but that's not what happens. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, take the elders, take the staff. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. I will stand before you there. Now, he was probably standing before them in the pillar of cloud, Okay, the pillar of cloud. We don't get that from this passage, but it seems that Psalm 81 alludes to that when it says, I answered you in the secret place of thunder when I tested you at the waters of Meribah. It seems like God is indicating that he appeared in this cloud of thunder, this cloud of pillar. And so there God is, standing before Moses, standing before Moses upon the rock. And what is Moses to do with this staff of judgment? He strikes the rock. He brings it crashing down on the very place in which God stands. Now what's fascinating is that throughout the Bible, the image of rock is often associated with God. So for instance, in Psalm 49, God is called a stone of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, God is called the rock whose work is perfect. And in Psalm 95, the psalm that was in our reflections, we're told he is the rock of our salvation. And you know, I didn't even notice it until we were doing the call to worship again this morning, but we actually declared it this morning. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He is often associated with the rock And so that is where he stands. He stands on the rock in which Moses brings his rod of judgment down upon. And as one theologian put it, he says, as Moses struck the rock, it showed how God would submit to the blow of his own justice so that out of him would flow life for his people. 
You see, the character of God is on display because in the striking of the rock, God is taking his own judgment upon himself rather than Israel. And that's actually what Christ did for us. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul hears the whisper of Jesus' name in this passage. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul invokes the memory of the Exodus and of this event, and he says, All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. You see, the rock was Christ because, like the rock, Christ was struck with the rod of judgment. Look, he was nailed to the cross. He took our sins upon himself. He bore them in his body. But that's not all he did because in the cross, he took the judgment of the Father upon himself. That judgment that his people were deserving, he took upon himself. And do you remember as he hung on the cross? His side, it was pierced, and from his side flowed blood and water. Blood and water came flooding out of him. In the wilderness, God provided what they needed by striking the rock, and living waters came pouring forth that they drank of. But that was simply a sample of the living water to come, of the true water to come. Because in the cross, Jesus, our rock, was struck with judgment so that we would drink from the water of his righteousness. So that what we need, the forgiveness of sins, would flow from him, the rock, to us. And it has. You see, friends, that is why we don't put God to the test. That is why we don't try him in the courtroom of our hearts. Instead, we drink from the fountain of grace. We, tr- we taste of the water that flows from Christ, and we rest in him, our Rephidim, our place of rest. God shows his character in that he takes the judgment that we are deserving upon himself. But, but even more than that, see, the story tells us even more than that. He tells us he gives us living water, but he also goes and wins the battle for his people. He fights for them the fight that they could not fight on their behalf. You see, the story picks up in verse 8. A battle is about to ensue. The people are drinking from the water. The Amalek, Amalek is coming to wage war against Israel. And so what does Moses do? He says to Joshua, choose for us men to go to fight. Now listen, don't, don't think of this as like Joshua's going to the army and he's going to the special ops, right? Like he's looking and he's finding SEAL Team 6 or, or like uh, the Green Berets, okay? This, this isn't what's happening because think about who Israel is right now. There are people who have been enslaved for hundreds of years, and they have been wandering in the desert. They've been looking for food and water. They've been walking for days. They're not ready for fighting. They're not ready for battle. They're not battle-tested or tried. They have no training. This is kind of like in Tolkien's The Two Towers at the Battle of Helm's Deep. Do you remember at the Battle of Helm's Deep, the Hurakai are coming and they're going to attack? You have no idea who the Hurakai are, but, but they're coming and they're going to attack the, the people of Rohan and there's not enough soldiers. And so what do they do? They grab the boys, 10 and 11 and 12, and they give them swords and shields. 
and they put them on the wall. These little boys who were trained to be farmers, not fighters. That's a better picture of the kind of men that Joshua is grabbing. He's grabbing men, but they have no experience in battle yet, in fighting. They haven't been trained. They've been slaves. And that's the point. You see, that's the point. They had to depend upon God. If they're going to win this battle, God would have to fight on their behalf. And that's what he does. Moses goes up to the hill. He takes his friends, Aaron and Hur, with him. They go up to the hill. They stand above the battle. And he holds up the staff of God. This staff that, that was the picture of God's judgment is now the picture of God's presence and his power. He holds it up. And, and as the staff is held high, the people win. But as it lowers, as he wearies, as he grows tired, they begin to lose. Now, what's going on here? Because this is really bizarre. If we think about it, it's really bizarre. Like, like why is it that the staff held up high? Now, now there are lots and lots of opinions about this. And, uh, and we don't have time to go through them all. But one, a, a dominant one, uh, is actually that this is a picture of prayer. That this story is the power of prayer in Moses' life. Um, I don't think that's a good, good understanding of this. I actually don't think that that's what's going on. I don't think this is the picture of prayer. I, do I think Moses prayed? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, how could he not? There's a few reasons I think that. One is the posture of prayer often actually isn't with hands held high above the head. There are places in the Psalms where that is described, but actually the posture of prayer in the ancient Near East was often hands before the chest or, or face as heads were lifted up, and so the posture seems not consistent with prayer. But also, the point isn't Moses' ability, the point is God's. When the staff is high, above the battle, God in his presence, sovereign over this battle, his people win. His people take the, de- take the ground. No, I think the ultimate point is that apart from God, Israel would never win this battle. But that with God, as he fights for his people, he wins a battle that they could have never won for themselves. That is the point. And friends, that is exactly what Jesus has done. That is exactly what Christ has done for us. You see, he did take God's judgment upon himself in the cross. His side was pierced. Blood and water did flow from it. He was killed and laid to rest in the tomb. But death did not have the final victory. No. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a few chapters after the Apostle Paul invokes the memory of the Exodus, he starts talking about the resurrection, and he says that if Jesus remained in the tomb, then we're still in our sins. If Jesus remained in the tomb, then the battle has not been won. If Jesus is still in the tomb, then we as Christians are to be pitied above all people. Pitied because death, not life. Condemnation, not grace. Tomb, not resurrection, has won. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty, and in its emptiness, Christ's resurrection tells us he has won the battle no one else could have won. He has done what no one else could do, 
Not Moses, not Joshua, not Israel, not us. He has done the very thing that no one else could do. He has defeated sin and death. He has defeated the devil and the grave. And he has done it for you. He's done it for you that we would not remain in our sins. He's done it for you that we would not test God's character. He has done it for you that we would not sit in judgment over the creator of the universe. He has done it for you. And so, as Israel looked to the staff that was raised up high, we look to Christ who was raised from the dead. And in his rising has saved us from his enemies as well as ours. And so, friends, this morning, we are to sing with the psalmist. The song that he sang today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, the place of testing, as on the day of, excuse me, Meribah, the place of quarreling, as on the day of Massah, the place of testing in the wilderness. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts when your father put him to the test instead. Today, if you hear his voice, look to him. Put your trust in his character. Find him as your place of rest. Your Rephidim, the one who has taken our judgment upon himself, the one who has won the battle we could not win. Put your trust in him. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you that you have sent your Son, our Lord Jesus, to bear in his body our sin, to take your judgment upon himself, to free us from sin and death, from hell and the grave. We rejoice that the tomb is empty and that Christ reigns victoriously. And because he is risen, we rise with him. And so we ask that you would help us as your people to, to trust in your character, to know your goodness, and to follow you today into all our days. Do this, we pray, in Christ's name. And God's people said together, Amen.